Welcome again. My name is uh, Frank Goodyear, and it's a pleasure to speak with you this evening about uh, this portrait of uh, Red Cloud, or Makpia Luta, which is his uh, born Lakota name. Um, this is one of 120 photographic portraits in the Portrait Gallery's newly opened exhibition, Faces of the Frontier, Photographic Portraits from the American West, 1845 to 1924, that highlights uh, the men and women who had a transformative uh, impact on the great changes that were happening in the trans-Mississippian West during this critical 80-year uh, period. Um, it's very exciting to, uh, to open this exhibition as it's really one of the very first uh, exhibitions that the Portrait Gallery has ever uh, done about the history of the American West. And um, the museum uh, and other Smithsonian museums have remarkable photographic collections, uh, <clears throat> literally millions and millions of historic images. Uh, and, the, uh, and, and, and many of these images have to do with the history of, of the native peoples of the West and, and of the exploration, the scientific study uh, of, the, of the American West. For indeed, the Smithsonian was an active part in, in that exploration uh, and, and that study of this important region. Um, but while I would be happy to talk about anything in the room or, 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 or in the gallery itself. Our attention this evening is on this portrait of, of, of Red Cloud, uh, taken by a Washington photographer named Charles Bell uh, in 1880. Let me step back, though, and tell you a little bit uh, about my interest in Red Cloud and where it all sort of uh, began. Um, I was in graduate school down um, at the University of Texas at Austin uh, back in the mid uh, 1990s, and I, I was in a graduate seminar on the history of the American West. And uh, you know, graduate seminars, you have to write a seminar paper at the end of the uh, semester. And I was really interested in the photographic representation of, of Native peoples. And interestingly, the the Smithsonian's National Anthropological Archive had just. Uh, uh, photographed their entire uh, collection and put um, it on uh, microfilm reels that were uh, distributed to many of the major you know, research universities around the country. And so as a, uh, as a graduate student interested in, in Native American photography, I, I started uh, spending a little bit of time uh, looking at this microfilm. Uh, and what I came to uh, appreciate uh, very early Early on in looking at these, you know, 20, 30 rolls of microfilm at the University of Texas library was that there kept coming up more and more pictures of Red Cloud. And I was like, who was this guy? How was he photographed? Uh, why was he photographed so often? Yes, certainly there were other Native American figures like Sitting Bull and Geronimo who were certainly photographed a great number of times. But nobody was photographed as often as Red Cloud. And this prompted me, you know, a, a curious graduate student to kind of investigate this question. Who was this guy and why did he pose for his photograph as often as he did? Um, at the time, 
during the course of the seminar, I think I found about 40 different photographs of Red Cloud and wrote a nice little seminar paper about it. But I continued to be kind of curious about collecting pictures of Red Cloud. And at the end of what ended up being a, a five or six year period, I had collected more than 140 different photographs of this uh, famous Lakota chief. And I'm fairly certain that uh, these 140 photographs make him the most photographed Native American in the 19th century. Um, and it begs the question, why would he have been photographed as often as he was? Um, uh, you know, who was taking these photographs and how were these photographs being used? Well, if you look a little bit further into his biography, you begin to understand why he posed as often as he did. But to step back a little bit, a little bit of his biography, uh, Red Cloud was born uh, in western Nebraska, uh, probably around 1822, to the uh, Oglala Band of the Lakota Indians, uh, a, 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 plain, a Northern Plains tribe. Um, Red Cloud distinguished himself as a warrior uh, in the years both during and after the American Civil War. Um, the American um, gold uh, prospectors had carved a trail in 1863 that led uh, to uh, southern Montana. It was known as the Bozeman Trail. Um, gold had been discovered in the summer of 1862 in Bozeman, in the Bozeman, Montana area, and it launched this kind of uh, uh, gold rush in, into that region. Well, the Bozeman Trail uh, passed uh, directly through some of the prime Lakota uh, traditional lands. And uh, warriors, uh, chiefs like Red Cloud and others, were greatly disturbed by the increasing number of American settlers who were... Uh, trespassing across Oglala lands. And there were a series of, of small skirmishes which led the U.S. Uh, government to establish three forts along uh, the Bozeman Trail to protect uh, uh, settlers who were moving uh, north into uh, Montana. This further uh, increased the tension between uh, the Lakota and uh, American authorities. And Red Cloud initiated um, what became known as Red Cloud's War uh, from 1866 to 1868. Um, it was one of the only wars in which the native uh, side proved victorious. Um, the um, uh, American authorities were forced to abandon those three forts, uh, and a peace treaty was signed at Fort Laramie in 1868 uh, that uh, ostensibly um, su suggested that these traditional homelands were Lakota lands and that sh they should not be uh, violated by uh, outside uh, settlers. Um, if we move the story forward a little bit, um, while Red Cloud in the larger popular imagination was this kind of uh, uh, mythic warrior figure, and indeed he did participate in many important battles, around the period of 1870 or so, he takes a turn in his thinking about uh, the 
future relationship between native and non-native peoples. And it realizes that it's not a military conflict that is going to settle uh, this question of the native people's status, but it's rather just diplomacy. Uh, and Red Cloud, over the course of the, really the next 40 years of his life, the second half of his life, he is going to devote himself to finding a diplomatic solution to this uh, historic conflict. Red Cloud will come to Washington, D.C. on more than a dozen different occasions. He will meet with five different presidents. Um, no native uh, diplomat uh, traveled as frequently to Washington as Red Cloud did. Um, Red Cloud just, this is kind of fun, uh, he always liked to stay at the Hotel Washington down here on 15th Street. Um, oftentimes, um, Indian Bureau officials uh, uh, saw that he was well-treated, he, he, he ate well, he oftentimes uh, bought himself a, a, a suit. He oftentimes went to see that it, the doctor or the dentist while he was here. He was treated very, very well. But also on these occasions, he was also photographed. He made himself available, really, for photographers to take his picture. Photographers wanted his picture because these were highly marketable images that could be sold uh, to, uh, to, to customers here in Washington and, and further afield. But to Red Cloud, I think making himself available to photographers uh, helped to kind of uh, formalize a kind of growing relationship, uh, a sense of goodwill uh, that he was trying to nurture between Native and non-Native uh, peoples at this particular time. This particular likeness uh, was taken on Red Cloud's fifth trip to uh, Washington, D.C. in uh, 1880, May of 1880. Um, There was a delegation of about 40 uh, Native uh, tribes, people who traveled from Pine Ridge in the Dakota Territories to Washington. They were known as the Indian School Committee on this particular trip because uh, their first purpose was to visit uh, the recently established Carlisle Indian School uh, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Richard Henry Pratt, whose portrait is uh, in the next gallery here, uh, had established this school for Native youth um, that was really going to um, um, to help the uh, acculturation process um, to uh, encourage uh, Native peoples to um, to to learn a, a white man's trade, whether that be farming or some other uh, vocation. Uh, Pratt had established this school a year earlier, and the Lakota uh, sent uh, more than 60 uh, boys and girls to the school that first year. And really, their support, and and, and Red Cloud was uh, an active hand in uh, fostering the uh, initial matriculation of these 60 students. It was really important to get that kind of support to get the school up and running. And so the Indian School Committee, this delegation group, stopped in Carlisle, Pennsylvania to sort of inspect what was going on to ensure uh, that uh, the children were being uh, well taken care of and that the education was proceeding uh, in, in a positive fashion. From there, they went down to Hampton, Virginia, where the Hampton uh, School uh, had been established uh, in 1868, uh, initially for uh, 
the children uh, of African American um, African American children in the year after um, uh, in, in the years after uh, the conclusion of the Civil War, but the Hampton uh, earlier um, also started to accept uh, Native uh, uh, students as well. And so again, the Indian School Committee went down there to uh, to take a look and see how things were proceeding. Um, and the final stop was back here to Washington, D.C., where Red Cloud and other delegates uh, met with President Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, met with Indian Bureau officials, um, and also visited the photographic studio of Charles Milton Bell, who had a very prosperous uh, um, studio along Pennsylvania Avenue. Matthew Brady, perhaps the most celebrated photographer in the sort of mid-19th century, his business uh, had really fallen on hard times. Brady was not a good businessman. Uh, he had sort of mismanaged the, the accounts. And it really was uh, Charles Bell who was uh, one of the most sort of celebrated photographers of the time, of the time period. Um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs sent many Indian delegations to Bell's studio uh, to have their portraits made. And on this occasion, uh, many of the delegates of the Indian School Committee uh, are photographed. Now, it's a particularly interesting picture, I think you will see. Um, <clears throat> for one thing, just take a look at the studio setting in which Red Cloud uh, f situates himself. Uh, this rock doesn't seem altogether uh, real. It's not. It's made of paper mache. And what's going on with all of this business on the floor of the studio? Well, it's Spanish moss, uh, which has been introduced perhaps to, I don't know, add a, a certain exoticism to, to the picture. I find it particularly interesting, though, that the Spanish moss covers up his new leather shoes that he wears here. It's almost as though uh, the photographer is trying to hide that you know, aspect of his dress. Um, and then there's the uh, painted studio backdrop, uh, which looks more like a kind of Scottish coastal scene than it does a, a, plains, uh, a, a plains landscape, for sure. So it's a completely kind of artificial uh, environment. And I might mention also that the shirt that Red Cloud wears um, was not actually a shirt that Red Cloud owned himself. It was a Lakota shirt, but further research on this picture has indicated that that shirt was at the time owned by the Smithsonian Institution and lent to for the occasion so that, again, uh, Red Clouds uh, could appear more native-like. Why Red Clouds was agreeable to all of this um, is a very interesting question and suggests, I think, something of the complexity of his character, that he would permit himself to be mm, perhaps used in this way. Well, I would say that Red Cloud, again, saw photography as part of this larger diplomatic exchange. Um, and that Red Cloud was willing to make himself available and to do these things in order to kind of uh, further the, uh, good relations between uh, his tribe and, and the American government. I think it is curious uh, that he holds this cane, which actually happens to be a gold-tipped cane. He had been given that cane uh, by a bureau, a friend that he uh, had 
long um, had a, a good friendship with um, at, the, at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, and this notion of a gift exchange that, you know, you give me something, uh, I'll give you something back, uh, was part of the uh, larger kind of diplomatic ritual that was performed here in, in Washington. It's interesting that in many photographs after this particular image, Red Cloud carries that cane with him. It obviously was something that was of great significance to him. This is Red Cloud in 1880. Um, it's, uh, um, he is at this time about, uh, about uh, 80 years, or excuse me, about 60 years old. Um, he would live another 30 years uh, and be photographed, as I say, on countless more uh, occasions. Um, there's interesting transformations that occur over time uh, in his, uh, in his, uh, in his uh, appearance. For about an eight-year period, he cuts his hair and is only photographed wearing what we might think of as traditional white man's dress. Why would he have cut his hair and, and dressed in this particular fashion? And then why is, would he have, around the time of the famous Battle of Wounded Knee, uh, abandoned this look, grown out his hair, and only uh, presented himself publicly wearing traditional native garb? I think that these photographs, what I'm arguing here, provide some insights into the complexity of, of this important um, uh, tribal uh, leader, uh, for certain. Um, this picture, uh, a final note, um, this picture uh, was collected by the Smithsonian uh, and was housed uh, at the, it was known as the Bureau of American Ethnology for many years. It's today known as the National Anthropological Archives, um, a collection that was uh, built in order to um, uh, an archive established to uh, further the uh, study of the native peoples of, of, of North America. And so that this picture was originally uh, housed in the context of, of a larger sort of ethnographic study. But what I love about the history of this photograph, too, is that in the mid-1960s, this photograph was uh, rediscovered by uh, Native Americans um, not that they had long forgotten it, but that in the height of the American Indian Movement, also known as the Red Power Movement, a civil rights uh, uh, movement uh, involving Native peoples in the mid-1960s, this photograph uh, became uh, a poster images uh, for um, uh, young um, Native activists um, and I found it very compelling when I invited uh, the American Indian uh, curator, uh, Emil Hermeni Horses, who, was a, um, who is a member of the Oglala Lakota, that um, he said that he grew up with that poster in his bedroom, uh, on his bedroom wall. And so that this picture, uh, though in many respects a, a really kind of uh, odd, sort of hybrid kind of image, uh, had a great deal of resonance uh, within his family and within his kind of tribal community. 
As a final kind of personal footnote, I think one of the most rewarding aspects of working on a study of Red Cloud was the opportunity to actually take um, reproductions of these 140 photographs that I had found back to Pine Ridge, South Dakota, and to meet with members of the Red Cloud family that still live there uh, at Pine Ridge, and to uh, go through the uh, pictures with them one by one, uh, and to listen to the wonderful stories that were being told uh, about their famous, famous uh, uh, grandfather. There were insights that family members could provide me that, um, uh, that, they, that I certainly had never discovered in the course of my research. And there was wonderful things about Red Cloud's own history that I was able to communicate to the family that they had never heard before. They had never known that he had been to Washington on 12 different occasions and met five different presidents. And, you know, this uh, research trip uh, remains one of the most sort of memorable experiences in, in, in my sort of young scholarly life. And so Red Cloud for me is not only a, a, a seminal figure in the history of the Trans-Mississippian West during the latter half of the 19th century, um, but uh, also, I think, a, a touchstone for uh, many of the most important issues uh, that uh, involve Native and, and non-Native relationships at the end of the 19th century. Um, those are my thoughts for now. If you have questions, I'd be more than happy, or observations, comments, I'd be more than happy to answer them. Um, 140 portraits, how many of them were studio portraits? Were there any outside uh, scenes of him or horses? Or... The first photograph taken of him was in 1870 when he first came to Washington. So, uh, in a sense, his engagement with photography coincides with his turn towards di diplomacy. Um, yes, there were photographers who went out to the Dakotas to photograph him. There aren't any pictures of him on a horse, uh, but there are certainly pictures of him next to his home. Um, which, by the way, he maintained both a traditional uh, teepee, uh, but he also had a, a wooden cabin uh, in which he uh, lived as well. And there are photographs, actually, of the interior of Red Cloud's uh, wooden cabin. And what I find so remarkable is that Red Cloud himself collected photographs of himself, of his family, of his, uh, of his, of his close friends. Um, because I think that he also collected American flags that were given to him as gifts. These flags, these photographs were, in a sense, power symbols. Uh, they uh, helped to sort of lay the basis of his authority uh, and the respect that was accorded him in the larger non-native world. Red Cloud's legacy within the Logala Lakota, and I, you know, as a non-native, I, I, I'm, I'm perhaps a little hesitant to speak with any real authority, but I know that it's a complicated legacy because he was such a complicated figure. Uh, uh, Lakota uh, figures like Sitting Bull, uh, you know, who, who, who died um, at a young, relatively young age, um, 
in a hail of, of gunfire, um, you know, it's more easy to kind of grasp the significance of, of, of Sitting Bull's life uh, or American Horse's life. Um, with Red Cloud, it's a much more complicated uh, uh, legacy, for sure. Um, I think that many revere um, his achievements, uh, but there are, of course, uh, some who also question what they perceive as compromises that he made uh, in the pursuit of trying to uh, solve this problem that existed between Native and non-Native groups. Um, it's interesting. Red Cloud never uh, compromised the the, the, the goal of, of the autonomy, the political autonomy and sovereignty of the, of the Lakota. Um, but he was willing to make other, he was willing to compromise on other things, including his uh, initial acceptance of the, um, of the Carlisle Indian School, which is itself a very controversial uh, institution. And a similar question. I wondered if the photographs contributed to Red Cloud's popularity amongst his own people at the time, because if you look at Lakota history at the time, it wasn't just a conflict between Indians and non-Indians, there was almost a civil war going on. Spottetail was killed by his own people. Uh, Indian police held with crazy horses arms. He was bayoneted. Sitting Bull was shot by an Indian policeman. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if the photographs contributed to the fact that Red Cloud seemed to be more popular amongst his own people. He was at least able to survive into the 19th century. It's a, the it's a, very, good, um, it's a very good question. Um, Leadership within Lakota society is oftentimes uh, attained through some type of performative measure. Um, it is the ability to, to speak convincingly at, at council. It's, it's one's performance on, on the battlefield or in diplomatic exchanges. I think that his performance before the camera, you know, not only kept him in the eye of American society, but also uh, reaffirmed his authority within Lakota culture as well. I mean, look at the type of respect that, uh, that the white, uh, white Americans are according him. And so I think that, yes, these pictures have a great deal of resonance within American society for a whole host of reasons, but they mean something altogether, I think, different, but equally important with Lakota uh, political culture as well. Yeah, good question. Native Americans ought to look 
I, another good question. Um, there's, I think, no doubt that Charles Bell's intentions were to create an image that was marketable. And any type of uh, elements that he could add to the portrait session that might f enhance the stereotypical notions of Native peoples, he's going to do. And so the fact that Red Cloud walked into this studio wearing a European suit, a, a, a white man's suit, didn't really... Um, uh, uh, didn't really uh, strike uh, Bell as what he was hoping to achieve with this picture. That Bell wanted to create a picture not unlike many uh, artists, and you referenced McKinney and Hall, early 19th century artists who uh, really portrayed the native as, as a noble savage. Uh, that, that Bell is trying to do something, I think, similar, um, but he has the additional challenge of working with a, a photograph, which, of course, is going to um, capture detail in striking, um, uh, with striking fidelity. And so he's taken sort of steps to kind of hide, to mask uh, some of the actually larger reality that... Uh, Red Cloud represented at, at this particular moment. And so I think there's this real tension that, that exists in this interaction between photographer and, and subject here. Remember that a portrait is always, uh, a good portrait is always the product of a, of a collaboration uh, between at least two individuals, uh, the subject, the photographer, but I would also add to that equation the viewer him or herself. You know, viewers had certain expectations about what they might see. And so in this kind of three-way collaboration, um, we see, uh, I think, insights uh, about uh, the various hopes and anxieties that people had uh, about Red Cloud uh, and, and Native issues more generally at this time. They, the relative, the, my, my memory is of when relatives would pick out um, uh, objects in the photograph, things that they were wearing, uh, that he was wearing, or other additional things that, uh, you know, were being held or were on a table next to him, and they'd be uh, very curious, like, that's not a Lakota shirt, you know. Uh, the, the, whatever happened to the gold-tipped cane, you know. Uh, I wonder if it's, you know, I wonder what has become of it. Um, uh, they would also uh, kind of laugh at the way in which Red Cloud wore his hair. Uh, way in which a, uh, an Oglala uh, male wears his hair is very significant. Um, and they were able to suggest in just the way in which he presented himself uh, details about uh, about how he was feeling or how he was trying to kind of present himself in, in a kind of public way. Yeah.
yes. And Little Crow uh, was the head of the uh, Dakotas uh, who were living a band, several bands of Lakota uh, in uh, Minnesota in the summer of 1862. And there are a series of skirmishes that lead to um, the Lincoln diverting all sorts of Union soldiers to Minnesota to deal with this situation. The thing to remember about the Lakota and the Dakota is that um, while the American authorities wanted to identify one individual as the primary chief, like the president of the tribe, in fact, Lakota uh, society is, is broken up into what is it, seven different distinct bands. Each band has their own leaders, their own tribal council. And so the fact that um, Red Cloud is um, somewhat related uh, tribally to Little Crow and the Dakota, he had no authority whatsoever uh, over what transpired there, nor did he participate in any of those particular battles. Um, uh, at the time, he was living in uh, the western part of the Dakota Territories, which was uh, quite a far removed from th what was happening up in Minnesota at the time. So the answer is uh, Red Cloud didn't have any uh, participation or involvement or opinion whatsoever about what was going on in Minnesota in 1862. Thank you so much, Frank. Thank you all. Thank you.